Chad Post is the director of Open Letter, a new press that specializes in the English translation of international works of note. You're located in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Oh, thank you for having me. Start with an observation, and that is that uh, of, say, the top ten novels that I think are the greatest, most of them have to be from authors that aren't English. Yeah, I feel the same way, and I think that that... That's pretty true with a lot of people that you think of the the greatest works that you've ever read or that exist, and they're frequently books that have been translated into English, like the Don Quixotes or War and Peace. For me, it's Hopscotch by Julio Cortazar was one of the books that, that actually got me really interested in international literature. It was one of my all-time favorites. And what we're reading, of course, are the works of translators who will take the same text and uh, turn out different books. Right. That, that, that whole thing is an interesting issue. I mean, there's, there's lots of people who think that like the translation is somehow secondary or not as good as the original, which really is a, a odd perspective to have. There's the, the old famous story of, with Gabriel Garcia Marquez saying that the English translation of 100 Years of Solitude is a better book than he wrote because Rabassa made it a better book in the translation process. So there's lots of, and, and that does happen frequently with, with translations, that they're as good, they could be even better than the original in some sense because they're like writing the book for a second time. And I guess in, you know, in the cases where the, the author isn't dead, there's collaboration yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if the author knows some English. It can be a dangerous scene, though. <laughs> if, they're, if they know a little bit of English, but think they know a lot of English. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you set up the Open Letter Press back in 2007, and affiliated with this, or underneath its umbrella, is your 3%... Yeah, that's a absolutely. blog, is it? Yeah, it's uh, a blog and a review site that's kind of expanded in like some, some interesting ways. There's myself and two other people um, who had all been working at Dalkey Archive that came here to start Open Letter back in January 2007. And by July of that year, we knew kind of what the, the look of the press would be and like how it would, when it would start, when the first books would come out, like how we'd be distributed. We knew all the, the kind of the specifics, but we also knew that it would take us about 12 to 18 months to publish our first book because we have to acquire it, get it translated, do all the editing and production and publicity and then the book would come out in like September of 2008 so in that that June July period it's like well you know that's a long time and we have sort of a sort of more ADD qualities that I had so I thought well you know what would be cool is if we could start a website beforehand that would sort of you know help cultivate an audience for that appreciated international literature it wouldn't be like a marketing website it'd be much more of like you know, talking to these people who do like these sort of books that I like, we'd re- be able to review things, we'd be able to do s- all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. So it started out as like a blog and review site, specifically. But then at some point, um, we we came up with, I guess it was at the end of 2007, we were discussing like how there should be a list or an award for the best translated book. And that it, it became very, it was a very odd experience because I wrote on the blog about how you know, I was sort of pissed that there's all these, like, year-end best-of books lists, and none of them have to do with international literature. It's just completely, like, not there. The best books of the year were all written by Americans, except for, like, sometimes Pierre Patterson and Sneak On, or 2666 in this year's case. But it wasn't, like, a very comprehensive thing, and I knew that there are a lot of good international books that are coming out, and they're just not being highlighted. So we thought we'd make a list. Um, so I wrote about it on, online and asked people for recommendations. And suddenly it became this weird kind of game in which people are like, I remember a translation that came out. It wasn't even that it was the book that they loved the most, but they couldn't even think of what books were, were translated or were published in translation because there's so few of them and because they're so under-publicized. So I decided that 
there that we couldn't obviously couldn't solve all the world's problems but what we could do is that we could start a translation database that would track all the original translations coming out and being published in America so that we could see the list and know how many books because even 3% is part of a there's a study, various studies that have been done that suggested that 3% of all books published in America are in translation. So that's where we stole that statistic mm-hmm. for our name of our site. But there's no real evidence of that. There's no like place that you can look and say, like, oh, here were the books. There, yeah. You get a number. You basically you know. have to kind of go through and research all the different uh, the presses that have published translations. Exactly. And then put that up against the total number of, of books published. Yeah. Exactly, and there's and there's never any specifics. So we started even the though you did come up with the point seven percent of literary and pro and, and poetry. Exactly, and that's what that's what this database led to is by being able to look at and keep track. And I went through all these catalogs and all these websites and started putting in like all the details. And even these are ones that I have to enter. Yeah. Um, but uh, they that way we were able to to say like yes, there was two hundred and I think it was for fiction. There's like 275, 280 books that came out in 2008 that were works of, of literature and translation, and then like 70 works of poetry. Um, so we were able to get, get something specific. And then out of that, we also created this Best Translated Book Award. So the website, so 3% sort of grown, is my whole point, is that it went from yes, being just okay. a blog and a, a recite to like also housing this database and also supporting this award that they were going to give out every year into the future to help bring some attention to, to great translated books. You look at the greatest books that have been written back, uh, you know, for example, when the the great Russians were writing in the mm-hmm. late eighteen uh, hundreds, mid late eighteen hundreds, for that for the Russian literary scene, the heyday, the, the, the golden yeah. days. Yeah. But I just wonder what it's like right now. I mean, as an English speaking reader, what am I missing? You just go and look out and read all sorts of reviews that tell you that these are really, really great. Works. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, it's reading stuff, but also meeting with people and getting to, we've, over time, like I've been working in publishing for, I think, just over, just about 10 years, essentially. Um, I've developed like a pretty good network of people that, who I can ask questions to and whose tastes I trust, or at least I, I know what their tastes are, and start to do a lot of talking to people to find out like what's going on in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And by having that, like in going to like places like the Frankfurt Book Fair and and London Book Fair and talking to all these people, I start to get a better sense of like what's going on in different parts of the world and like what things have been overlooked. Because the, the, one of the interesting things about what you're saying too is like the Russians were translated, you know, early in the 20th century. A lot of books are translated by Constant Garnett, yeah. obviously. But generally speaking, like over the first part of the 20th century, there were a lot of translations done into English and people read them and they were talked about and discussed. And then that sort of falls off and like a lot of things go kind of under the radar. So even like there could be very classic, great, lasting books that have been published in other languages over the past 50 years, but there's like a really small chance that they're actually translated into English. So we're even looking for, you know, all the works of the 20th century, but there's things that are, have been overlooked. And the way that our culture and our media functions now, those books don't generally get as much attention. So for them to become the classics that these books did in the past is going to be a different, it's, a, it's kind of an uphill battle. Yeah. that it might not have been... Although you do before. mention, I think I saw on your blog, you mentioned that the New York Times reviewed yeah. four in one... And this week they have three more. <laughs> so they're, so something's happening. They're, yeah, they're, they're, everyone always criticizes them for not reviewing translations or for fiction in general. And then when they when they do, I don't think anyone actually gives them any 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 props for, for doing that. But I think that, you know, I've talked to Santana House a lot, and I think he does like works in translation. I, still, I don't think that it's like a bias of his. I think it's just, you know, the way that the business works. You yeah. review the big book of the moment and the big books of the moment tend not to be 
translations in the minds of reviewers or booksellers or or whomever. Yeah. Um, Although you know the um, there's a, the, the new translation of War and Peace. Yeah, it was a huge, huge. Yeah, and that sold tons of copies and got lots of attention. And even the New York Times had a big book club about that, which had a lot of participants and a lot of comments. And that did really well. And then there's also like the 2666 phenomenon for Blondie thing. That was that book is everywhere. Yeah, and I want to get to that because this is an interesting case. I can't think <coughs> of any other foreign author that has completely dominated the scene like yeah. this one. Partly, I suppose, it's because he's great, but yeah. why this guy versus... You know? Someone else who's great. Exactly. I yeah, it's interesting. I think the only other person that that I could think of, it's like there's usually one that comes along that doesn't. I mean, I don't know if anyone's been as big as Blanco, and and I'll, I'll tell you what I think why that is in a second. But Sebald was getting up there and getting close, um, and then he died, he died young, yeah. yeah. And so there may have been, and he didn't have enough works to like build up because it was a very building process for Blanco. Part of Nazi literature in the Americas was translated and published in. Granta magazine back years ago, like I think in the early 90s, mid-90s maybe, um, and then it started dormant, and then Harville in the UK and New Directions here published By Night in Chile, and then there was Distant Star, and at that time New Directions had signed on like seven books, but they hadn't signed on Savage Detectives in 2666, so they were going to do all these, a lot of the smaller ones, the short story collections, the smaller novels, so they did those two he was starting, those books were well-reviewed, and, and people read them, but I don't think that they were, they weren't nearly on the, the level of 2666. But they started to build that kind of an audience, and then they did the... This is New Directions. New Directions, yeah. And the New Directions brought out, oh, Last Evenings, Last Evenings on Earth, is that what it's actually called? The short story collection was the third book that they did, and that got a lot, a little bit of attention, too. And then Savage Detectives came out, and that was from FSG, a bigger press, had a little bit more clout in terms of getting the review coverage and they sort of blew that book up and I think that a lot of that was due to Lauren Stein the editor that he did a lot to try and promote that book specifically knowing that you know it's crazy we've got this book that's essentially like you know starts off with like a normal story and then it explodes in all these fragments it's not your typical book that Americans will be that we think as publishers or as media people or whatever that Americans will will glean on to but he did what he could to get get that out there and and it hit like a, a pretty wide audience and people really liked it. So New Directions continues on with what they're doing, doing Nazi literature, Amulet, and helping to build like this good, solid backlist and reputation for him. And then 2666 and comes along. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that becomes like the big book. And I think FSG again, like their, their kind of power and lo- what Lauren did to like promote that in like very interesting ways, like creating the idea of the um, three volume in one paperback yeah. um, and the hardcover at the same point in time. That was one of his ideas. That's a very interesting model that most it's a very atypical publishing idea because most of the time you're like no we do a hardcover and then a year later we do a paperback and he's like no i think we should do both of them at the same time and do it in this unique way he also did a lot of stuff through like facebook and through other like kind of viral and social marketing sort of ideas for creating and mobilizing those fans of 2666 instead of just trying to do it in the old school like oh get a lot of reviews and people go buy it instead he got a lot of people telling a lot of people about about this book and about Bolaño. Bolaño has like a great story to him too, especially since he he did die. He has a lot in his in his life and in his kind of reputation that people can like relate to. Yeah. But before him, like there always does seem to be like one who like may not be that popular, but is sort of like the international author of the moment. Like Saramago was after he won the Nobel Prize. Maybe Kurtesh for a little bit, but that was a little more complicated. Sebald, Bolaño. I mean, there's, there's kind of someone who rises above at, at various points in time. Why is that, then? 
I'm not sure why that happens exactly, except that there becomes almost like a token international author. Yeah. The thing that, that I've noticed before that bothers me about that kind of phenomenon is that frequently, if an author becomes the author, the international author for that region or for that time, all the other authors from that area are sort of ignored. So, for instance, with Saramago wins the Nobel Prize, oh, Saramago, Portugal, great writer, blah, blah, blah. Antonio Lobo Antunes, who was, like, equally good, had published as many books, was actually in, in Portugal. There's, like, a 50-50 split over who should win the Nobel Prize. He's kind of completely no, ignored. No him, yeah. yeah, he's, he's yeah, not, anyway. not paid attention to at all. Maybe it's, like, a well, social why, why hasn't anyone thing. picked him up? He's been published widely, actually. In, in, in English translation? In English. Groves published, like, six, seven books of his. Delkey did one. Norton's did two recently. He gets published, and he gets good reviews, and he gets... He sells fairly well for an international author, from what I have heard. But it's not, like, on that level of popularity with Saramago. Granted, he's a little more difficult to read, too. He's not as, as storytelling-based. He's much more of, like, a impressionistic sort of almost not surreal but you know more more experimental mm -hmm. so to speak um author so there's there's that challenge but still it seems like the like our social mind works in some way in which you like to say like here's the portuguese author here's yeah. the international author here's the whomever it is and that that's south the american, one right yeah. one south american i think has suffered because of the perception that that latin american south american literature should be magical realism so like they after like the boom and everyone sort of focused on that like they've been sort of forced into this pigeonhole of like yeah stereotype yeah yeah if you're not a, a magical realist like wow you really a South American author there are editors at all of these different publishing houses right who are tasked with scouring the world just like you are for fantastic writers because I mean if you can get a fantastic writer into English then you'd think that the audience would just naturally come, know, to, come it? to it and that they would make a profit, which is really what it's about. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so why, why aren't they, you know, I mean, they're looking at the English language right. writers. There's, there's a ton of those, and yeah. a lot of it's pretty damn mediocre. Yeah. Why aren't they going and finding these other great writers for us? I think there's a couple... There's a couple things that play into that specifically. One is that I think the editors at most larger houses that don't have like a long... I mean, a lot of a lot of larger houses have done a lot of translations, but currently they don't do that many. They The six big houses and all their subsidiaries produce like 20% of the translations. So they're you know, a fairly small number. But most of the editors that are working there are deluged with, with American writers, with agents that they're meeting with on a regular basis that are telling them about the new American whomever or like this new book's coming from this, this author that's been building an established reputation. They're getting all this information about American writers. They're seeing them at parties. They're seeing them at BA. And international authors aren't really part of that scene. So they have like great amount of knowledge and understanding of how the American writing scene is working right now. Then all of a sudden, say, for whatever reason, a Romanian publisher sends over a Romanian book in Romanian to this editor and has a letter saying, this is the great Romanian writer you should look at. They get that and it's like... I don't know what you do with that. Like, if you if your mind is all like you you know everything about the American scene, and you get this thing you're like I know nothing about Romanian. I don't know how to read Romanian. I don't know anyone who does read Romanian. I, I can't name like two Romanian authors. How would I know that this is that that good? It could sound interesting, but I don't even know how to treat this this well, but, object. Right. Um, I mean, wouldn't tra you know the translators would probably have to do it on spec though? But an English translation right. of that Romanian masterpiece that lands on the desk would stand a much better chance of getting published. Exactly. And that's a, that's a different 
a different skew and different problem. We work with a lot of translators and they're very active about like writing up, doing sample translations, sending along information, you know, trying to promote the books that they're interested in, the projects they're interested in. For, to you. For to, you uh, to, to us, yeah. yeah. I don't know how open the bigger publishers are to that. I think that they typically work through an agent system and not a lot of translators have agents. It, they, although some people like, like John Siciliano at Penguin would be very open to hearing from translators and is and has done a number of books based on translator recommendations. I think that he's sort of an unusual figure in that in that regard. I think that a lot of times it's, that that's not how the system works for them. But more importantly, from like the business point of view, so you got the edit, the problem of not a lot of editors read a lot of foreign languages. They're not that well versed in the the literatures of the of outside of the English speaking world. But the business side of it too, translations are expensive to a lot of these places because you have to pay for the translation itself, which costs you know thousands of dollars. But more importantly, there's kind of been the built in perception that these books aren't going to sell as well, they're not going to get it reviewed as well, and therefore they're going to be lost leaders. They're not going to make a profit. Even if they're great writing, they're great writing that'll be appreciated by a much smaller audience than what these presses need to survive. Ten clients a year. Yeah, if, if most of the, like, the bigger presses, like they have a sort of minimum of it. Ha book has to sell 20,000 copies to, to break even. I don't know how many people will actually admit to that as the actual number, but it's a number that comes up frequently. Like selling twenty thousand, okay, it'll be a, a commercial press can can live with that. But they're getting more and more pressure all the time to up their returns. So to build in all these extra costs and know that this book's probably going to sell like five thousand copies and not twenty, it's not going to work out so well for their accounts point of view. Yeah. Um, and it is it is much more of a gamble in their minds, which is silly because every book's a gamble. Like we don't know yeah, exactly. which book's going to well, sell. You would hope another. You would hope that it would be the quality. Of the pros that would sell it right but they, i don't think that they see it that way because i mean so much of it's based on the commercial model is based so much on like advances and on like that pre-hype so if you say an american author comes along it could be a terrible mediocre book if you're going to give them two million dollar advance that book's going to get reviewed everywhere mm -hmm. but how often are you going to take the romanian author and say i'll give you two million dollars now your book's going to be reviewed everywhere instead they say like well this book's probably not going to sell it well so we'll make an offer of ten thousand dollar advance and we'll pay our translator, and we'll hope to sell, like, 15,000 copies. Well, the marketing and publicity and sales departments see that you're only spending $10,000 on this book means it's not an important book. So they're not going to try and, like, push it the way that they are. The, the, the mediocre and American book that got a $2 million advance, they're going to push that because that has to earn back this huge advance. 10000 thing, I don't know, can do whatever it does. So it kind of falls, doesn't get the same attention, doesn't get the same same respect. The, the good writing thing should work out, but, I mean, so how, how does anyone hear about this? The book is, such a, is a bigger problem. Like, if you can find... But isn't... I mean, you talk about viral marketing. I mean, and incidentally, right. I'm speaking with Chad Post, who is the director of Open Letter, which is a press out of the Rochester University that specializes in translating international authors into English. Maybe there's a buy-American thing going <laughs> on. With, you know, one of the criticisms of Americans is that they're so ethnocentric and yeah. that so many of them don't care or know about what's going on outside of their borders right it's it's easy to say that there that there is because there's various evidence that sort of points that way the way that people like spanish american writers are much more popular than spanish writers and like there's there's sort of that there's, there's various things that make it look that way but i'm not sure that's actually true i think that there are there are literary readers who read who read literature no matter where it's from and that's a small not a huge group of readers in america most readers in america are entertainment-based or fact-based. They want to read, you know, the nonfiction book about whatever or 
you know, something that's just entertaining to them. And that's that's one category. But the people who are like more literary and more interested in literary fiction, they'll read anything. But they're they're a smaller audience. They're not the people that, that you're usually targeting when you're trying to sell like thousands and thousands of copies of a book. If you're trying to sell like five, six thousand copies, this audience is your audience. I don't think they're concerned if it's a translation no. or not. I think that they're more than willing to read these books. But it's it, getting them the information is something that is isn't done that well. I mean, traditionally, publishers have like kind of a business-to-business model. Like a publisher deals with a bookstore, and they deal with the book reviewers and, and the media. They don't deal with customers, per se. Yeah. So their system's set up in a way that they kind of hate their customers. They hate readers, because readers are messy it all up. It's easy if you say, like, I'm going to sell 2,000 copies of Barnes & Noble, get the author on NPR, I'm done. Yeah. And compared to, I'm going to deal with reader X who knows a lot of people and can help spread the word and virally yeah. Yeah. spend this, that's a really messy system for them. So yeah. th- when you get to these books that are um, in translation, that are literary works that would appeal to like this p- specific audience, it doesn't quite fit the, the normal way of promoting. Like it, it's, it's a different sort of model. And I think a lot of independent presses who do do the bulk of, of literature and translation know that and they've figured out ways in which they're able to make their business models work. And they found that people are responsive and do like international literature, not, you know, a hundred thousands of people. Like but are that. they making money, though? That's the question. Smaller presses and independent presses do, if not make money, depending on how much you expect to make, they, they at least break They keep the doors, the lights on, and the people paid. I mean, publishing books have never been a very profitable no. business. I mean, no. they've always traditionally been like a 2%, 3% sort of return. The problem is that with as things have been acquired, merged, and become more of these part of the media giants, that that percentage has been up to like where the owners want it and stockholders want it to be 10, 15 percent mm-hmm. return. That's very difficult to do, especially if you're doing a book that is in translation that has these extra costs. It's going to sell five, six, seven thousand copies. Maybe it'll sell like 15,000 over like a 20 year period, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be an immediate hit. It'll be a, a literary work that has a literary audience. But for a small press, they don't have that same kind of independent press, they don't have that same pressure. They yeah. just have to break yeah. even. They, they're doing it for love. They're doing it to make a little bit of money so that they can survive. Well, and also to preserve and uh, promote great literature. Exactly. Yeah. And so their, their, whole, their whole operating scale is so much different. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the same kind of staff size that, that a big press does. They don't, they don't pay those kind of rents. They don't yeah. you know, spend that much on, on the advances or on these things. And so like, if you reduce all of those, those various costs and then you sell 5,000 copies by being innovative and doing interesting things with your audience... You can break even just fine. There seems to be a ton of opportunity here because yeah. there are you know, so many more authors that no one seems to, at least in this huge market of ours, seems to be caring about. Yeah, and the, the people who, who are into it do recognize and talk about it that way. Barbara Epler from uh, New Directions, who's now, I guess, been named recently the publisher of New Directions, she um, used to say that going to the Frankfurt Book Fair was like walking through a field of flowers and picking whichever ones you want, because you can literally, if the Frankfurt Book Fair is like eight or ten halls that are yeah, that huge. are divided up by, by country frequently, um, so the Americans and, and English-speaking world are way off in a hall that's separated from everyone else called Hall 8, and then like halls 3, 4, 6 are all like um, international halls, and you go walk through there, you'll see like a handful of like American publishers that are also walking through there, but not very many. I mean, there's just, just a few, so like as an American press going up to the Slovenian publisher and saying, oh, I'm interested in finding out what Slovenian books there are. They're stunned. They're like, oh my God, really? You're from America for sure? And you really want to know about, about these books? So you do have like great opportunities, but it takes a lot more research, a lot more work. I mean, it's more, 
I wouldn't say necessarily. I mean, being an editor at any level is, is has its difficulties and its challenges and, and a lot of work that goes into it. Um, it's sort of difficult for doing international stuff because there's so many languages. You obviously don't know all of them. You have to find people that will help help read those books. You're kind of relying upon other, other networks than just your own. Yeah, but I mean, also, all you have to do is find the best literary critic in each country and, right. and you know, two or three of the best. Right. And if they come up with some kind of consensus, right, then, then you can usually got some titles. Yeah, and it's easy. I think it's easy to find like a few uh, titles from any country. Like you can you can talk to a number of people, critics, uh, other editors, academics, academics, some translators, and say like, for China, we want to find out about like ten books from China that need to be translated. You can get and kind of cross reference and find like that list, and then it's mainly just getting some samples, getting some some more information about each one of those books, and deciding which one probably fits best. Because they obviously can't publish all of them. So you, you end up making your choices based on your own aesthetic vision for the press. But it's not, I don't think it's that hard either. But I think that you kind of, I mean, it takes a lot of time. So you're sort of, if you're all in on translation, it's a lot easier to work that system and to understand it and to, to work within it. If you're doing it like, oh, I'm doing 99% American books and then this one translation, like that seems much more haphazard. Yep. Unless like, it's not as systematic, it's not, you don't have the time for that. And that's just, yeah, the way it is for most of these people. So are you the, you and, what, are there a few others that are doing this, I assume? The, for the for the press, yeah, there's um, two other full-time people. One, E.J. Van Lannan, who is the senior editor, and Nathan Furl, who does a lot of production and design and also um, helps with some marketing stuff. Your oh. press is doing this. Who else is doing it? Other, oh, yeah, there's a there's a good number. The Arch- yeah. Archipelago is one that does a lot of literature and translation. New Directions, obviously, Delkey Archive. Europa editions that just got a big feature in the New York Times. They do a good number of, of works in translation. There's a few others. Uh, Melba House, they have a really interesting series of, like, the Art of no- the Novella, where mm-hmm. they did both classic books that in translation and contemporary ones, some written in English as well, but it's, like, part of a, a very good series. And they're bringing out these Hans Falada books from... It's an Austrian writer, right? Not German. Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every Man Dies Alone that's coming out. So they do some... There's... Ugly Duckling does a ton of stuff for poetry. I mean, there's a good number. I mean, you know, this 3% number is kind of shocking when you first come across it, but from what you're saying, it's pretty healthy. It's, it, it is it is in the way that there's often a kind of a debate on, like, we say the 3% number is low, and there's, there's problems with it being such a low number because to become, like, a full-time translator, if only X number of books are being published in translation, makes that a very competitive and strange, difficult field, difficult to exist. There's even a study in... Um, for Europe, that they looked at like how the pay rates and like the way that that translators, full-time translators, can earn a living. And there's a footnote on there about the UK. They didn't have any US numbers, but in the UK, they're like there may not actually exist a full-time translator in the UK because there are not enough books to su- to, to su- support this. So there's a problem with the critical mass issue. But another uh, way of looking at it is okay. There are last year there were like 358 works in translation of fiction and poetry that came out. Now that 358. Very few of those actually got attention, got got a readership that they deserve. There's a lot of those that their readership was smaller than it deserved to be. It needed to reach more readers, and there would be more people to be interested, but they didn't get the right kind of promotion or right kind of publicity. Focus, and for, for me, has been more on trying to take that 358 and get more attention for it. Any number is great and necessary, but also it doesn't help if you expand a number and no one's reading any of the books. 
So you take it upon yourself then to promote all translations, not just the ones that you are... Right, yeah, doing. yeah, that's what we're trying to do. What an altruistic and mission. Then, yeah. And again, I guess the motivation is to get the best works in front of the most people. Yeah, that yeah. really is what, what kind of drives the 3% side of things.